Service is never ideological, for we do not serve ideas, we serve people. That's from a homily by Pope Francis from seven years ago in Revolution Square, La Habana, Cuba. And in a primary sense, I agree with the Pope for sure. Our goal as revolutionary Christians is ultimately the service of people, and it's in the service of people that we glorify God by our lives. To serve people is what we are about. To serve ideas is just nonsense. What is an idea compared to the face of a human person? But there's also a sense in which we can abuse Pope Francis's statement. To say that we should put people over ideas does not at all mean that ideas are insignificant. Rather, there's a deep connection between our service of humanity and our ideas. And it's practically impossible to separate the two in practice for an implicit or explicit ideological system accompanies each way in which we claim to serve humanity. And we cannot simply assume that all ideologies are equally humanitarian. There are ideas that kill, and there are also ideas that liberate. There are ideas that reinforce the status quo, and there are ideas that challenge it. And these ideas do not exist on their own. They operate in tandem with social and economic systems. They have a historical context. They have grit. How does liberation theology think through the topic of ideology? How does it respond to critics who claim that liberation theology itself is ideological? That it puts ideas over people, ideas over reality? And how does it engage with the prominent ideologies of our day? We'll get into these questions and more on today's show. This is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology, and I'm your host, David Inchauskas. I'm so happy to be back with a second episode from my new location in France. Things have been going incredibly well here so far, though I've definitely missed having episodes more frequently. But for now, this every two months rhythm will have to do while I'm continuing to learn French and to settle into this new environment. Hopefully, we can get back to more regular programming soon. But for now, here we are, and so let's talk some ideology. Our text today is Ideology by the Brazilians João Bautista Libano and Francisco Taborda, and it's taken from the second volume of Ignacio E. Correa and John Sabrino's Mysterium Liberationis, The Fundamental Concepts of Liberation Theology. We're on episode 23. We've made it through quite a bit of this book, and we're chugging along through it uh, more today. And after looking at Libano and Taborda, in our next episode, we're going to turn to Luis Althusser's ideological state apparatus theory for an alternative and complementary perspective. And throughout, I'll be sharing some, as always, personal and contemporary anecdotes that illustrate the points at hand. So we have a little twofer here. Uh, some now and some in our next episode on ideology. But starting with the basics, what is ideology? Uh, certainly a key question. There's a lot of definitions of ideology floating out there. And how has the definition of ideology evolved over time? Well, we can look at the word itself to begin. Etym etymologically, ideo refers to the act of seeing. Uh, logi refers to the word or what is spoken. So we might say that ideology means to say what we saw. 
And that's very much so in line with how the term was first used. It appeared in the work of the Frenchman Antoine de Stute of Tracy in 1796. He considered ideology to be the study of ideas in the general and scientific sense in which idea means the happenings of conscious perception. He saw ideology as an empirical study of ideas. And a curious fact about de Tracy, kind of as a side note, would be that his daughter Emily, a married the son of General Gilbert de Mautier de Lafayette, who assisted the U.S. in its war of independence against the British. So there's that. Uh, that's how the term began. Uh, but we see ideology take on a more negative connotation under the Emperor Napoleon. He called, uh, quote, metaphysical and ideological, end quote, those who first supported him, but then later turned against him. They were too committed, he said, to their ideal positions on law and government and not perceptive of what needed to be done in politics at that time. And we get the sense here that Napoleon thought of an ideologue as someone who's not practical, they're ahistorical, they're alienated from the changing circumstances as life as it really happened. Happens. They're not being very realist, and so today we might call such a person an idealist. But we can also clearly see that Napoleon's use of the term ideology is itself rather ideological, but in the sense of the word that developed under Marx and Engels a few decades later. With them, the word also has a negative connotation, but it means a false consciousness that reinforces bourgeois domination, a legitimation of the status quo. A little bit more on that next time with Althusser. But after that, there's Lenin, who uses the term ideology, but in a more positive sense. Ever practical, uh, Lenin was searching for a revolutionary way to communicate scientific socialism to the masses. And he saw ideology as an orienting strategy that communists could use to popularly share the essentials of their rigorous theory. Put bluntly, Ideology is like propaganda, but good propaganda uh, with a good cause. It's a simplification of socialist thought for the sake of liberating mass action. It's a way to connect to the people. It's pragmatic. It gets the people going. And Libanio and Taborda end their historical survey of uh, the term ideology with modern sociology, in which ideology signifies all thought heavily conditioned by social circumstances. This definition is broad, uh, since much of our thought about society really comes from our historical embeddedness in certain groups, like our class, race, ethnicity, nationality, and also uh, our exposure to other groups and other points of view. We tend to interpret reality through the prisms that we have available to us. For instance, it's not surprising that my understanding of church as a child and as a teenager too was heavily conditioned by my situatedness in a heavily white southwest suburban uh, Chicago town. And for the first 18 years of my life, my understanding of church was simply the same as my church in the suburbs. And it wasn't until I went to Guatemala in college that I saw how much of my ecclesiology was really influenced by this setting. It was ideological, uh, heavily limited by where I came from and how my white suburban church saw itself. The joys and struggles of my church in Illinois were not the same as the joys and struggles of the church that I witnessed in Chantla, Guatemala. So here we have this a short course on the history of the term ideology from 
a scientific analysis of conscious perception to a derogatory way to refer to idealist opponents, from the thought system of the bourgeoisie and communist propaganda to the general sense of the social conditioning of our political epistemology. Following this tracking of origins and developments, our authors continue with the phenomenology of ideology. Where do we see ideology appear and in what forms? Ideology is a universal phenomenon. It affects all groups of all times. It is spontaneous, pre-reflexive. But as an elaborated and strict system of representations, it is a modern and bourgeois phenomenon. And this way of looking at ideology combines a bit of the modern sociologists and a bit of Marx. All of us have ideology. All of us are socially situated. And at the same time, we need to see that there's a dominant ideology in our society, and that this ideology is a bourgeois one. This ideology can be summed summed up as the instrumentalization of all things and all people for the sake of becoming rich, famous, and independent. In a word, it's an ideology of success, defined as financially autonomous, sexually desired, well-liked. That's the goal for the individual, with individual in bold uh, and underlined ten times, though perhaps we can extend individual in some cases to mean one's immediate family as well. Certainly part of the bourgeois ideology for parents to desire riches, honor, and pride for their children. But I'd also like to note that one does not have to be a business owner to have a bourgeois ideology. It's simply the case that many middle-class and lower-class people are conditioned to have this ideology as well. They wish they themselves had the things that the upper class has and projects as desirable. And it's especially clear to me here in Paris, where every day I see many people engaging in what they think to be bourgeois behavior, though likely all of them are not bourgeois themselves. And I too feel this pull. I'm definitely not immune to it. I'm immersed in this environment, and it's hard to be anti-bourgeois in a city that's in many ways the pinnacle of the bourgeois lifestyle. So those who are not bourgeois look at the bourgeois life, and they say, I want that for myself. It seems kind of nice. And though bourgeois ideology is dominant now, even among the lower classes, it was not always dominant. Before the bourgeoisie was on top, there was the Ancien Régime. The bourgeoisie led the revolution against this former social construction, against church and king, and they did so in the name of equality and liberty. Looking back, though, we can see that this equality and liberty was more equal and more free for some than for others, precisely more equal and more free for the bourgeoisie itself. Despite rebellion against monarchy and clericalism, many social inequities continued following the bourgeois revolution, mostly of the 18th and 19th centuries, and some social inequities even deepened under the transition from feudalism to capitalism. So in this process of bourgeois revolution, we can observe the three phases of ideology. First, there's intuition, a sensation of injustice felt by the ascending class. There's a need to come up with a contra-ideological ideology that will assist the ascending class's project. For the bourgeoisie, they want more land to expand their wealth, but the king and the church own too much land. And these uh, bourgeois folks, they ask the question, aren't we all equal? What's so special about the royal family? What's so special about the priests? I deserve land and power too. Second, there's social consolidation. 
the ascending ideology becomes popularized, and even the peasants agree, yes, we are all equal, down with the ancien régime. But as this consolidation occurs, the ideology becomes more hegemonic as the ascending class triumphs. It shows itself for what it truly is, and it becomes conservative. We said all are equal, but we really meant that only free landowning men are capable of power. And then third, there's the critique, uh, sort of where we, are, where we are now in this process. The contradictions of the ascending group's ideology become apparent. What was a universal discourse manifests truly as a partial discourse. The new folks in power uh, say one thing, but they do another. They claim basic rights for all, but these rights are not a reality in practice. The intuition of a new ideology, more utopic, more future-oriented, emerges. And so here's the cycle of the historical phenomenon of ideology in three parts. Having given a little introduction of the term ideology, how it's evolved over time, and how it looks, and how its cycle looks, Libano and Taborda proceed by looking at ideology from four angles, as knowledge, as politics, as ethics, and as theology. So, knowledge. There are three aspects of this part of ideology that I'd like to discuss uh, in conjunction with our authors. First, under the auspices of knowledge, ideology has quote, the force of nature, end quote, or the semblance of universality with a projection onto the eternal past. That's kind of a lot, but essentially, ideology appears to its holder to be natural, universal, and eternal. It's the way things are, the way things always have been. Change is not really possible. Let me give a recent example that's definitely been on, that's definitely been on my mind uh, here the last few days. A few days ago, a friend claimed that communism has a flawed anthropology. It views human beings as naturally good, and it claims that capitalist society has corrupted human nature. And so its solution is to create a communist society which will restore humanity to its original pristine nature. However, he claimed this understanding forgets our fallen human nature, our concupiscence. It forgets that we humans commit evil acts not simply because we are socially conditioned by capitalism to do so, but also because we are living with the reality of original sin, which operates on the individual level in each human heart. So that's what he had to say, and there's a lot to say about this argument. First, we can question whether his perception of communist anthropology is accurate. And second, we can question whether his perception of anthropology in general is accurate. But I'm not going to go there just now. Rather, what I'd like to discuss is this argument's practical level. Uh, the second aspect of ideology is knowledge that Libano and Taborda discuss. They state that whereas scientific knowledge operates on the opposition truth-error, we develop a hypothesis, we test its truth, uh, does our hypothesis match reality? But ideology operates on the opposition useful, not useful. And that's what's most interesting to me about my friend's argument. It's utilization by capitalists to perpetuate capitalism. Since if indeed human beings are invariably 
and profoundly marred by original sin or human selfishness or whatever we may want to call it, then the project of a just common society kind of seems like a hopeless cause. Maybe we're better off surrendering our earthly dreams, living a quiet, prayerful life, and placing our faith in the afterlife. Or else, if we reject spiritual reality, then we ought to play the game of capitalism and try and win for ourselves, right? After all, if we're all hopelessly selfish, may the most selfish one win, and may it be me. That's how ideology operates. It takes a truth, a grain of a truth, or what appears to be the truth, and it blends it with the dominant social, economic, political structures, putting up blockades intellectually to revolutionary action. So, ideology at, at work, uh, in our work of philosophy, in our anthropology, there's a lot of justification going on of systems as they currently exist, saying alternative systems are simply impossible and the reason goes back to our human nature. Then the third aspect of ideology uh, is knowledge to discuss here would be scientism. And I've got another ad anecdote uh, to present this point. About seven or eight years ago, a family member was telling me that he wanted to study physics. Why? Well, because it's not ideological, he said. It's math at the end of the day, and math is objective, unlike psychology, philosophy, theology, the humanities, sociology, those kind of things. And okay, there's some truth here. Indeed, scientific laws are neutral in a very real sense. It doesn't matter whether you're a capitalist or a communist or anything else. Gravity applies to you. Uh, one plus one equals two, and your genetic code is that of a human being, not that of an armadillo or any other animal. But <laughs> science does not exist apart from society, apart from the realities of politics and money. So we need to ask some questions of it that have a distinctly ideological nature. For example, who are the scientists? What class, race, gender, national, and other interests do they bring to their work? Who is funding the research? To what end? How will the results be used? Will the results be monetized? And will new technologies be public or private goods? Where are scientists getting the raw materials they use in their experimentation? And who has access to the research? Where is it being published? And Libanio and Taborda used the example of the scientific research that led to the development of the napalm bomb. And curiously, when I was speaking to this family member, I used a similar example, the atomic bomb. So science is good, knowledge is good, but to what end? Is it the liberation of the oppressed, or is it the consolidation of capitalist hegemony? How is science politically and economically weaponized, made ideological in the bourgeois sense? All right, so that's uh, ideology and knowledge. Let's move on to ideology and politics. And some of this topic is, is really rich, and we want to save it for Althusser for next time to dwell on it a little bit more closely in the ideological state apparatus theory. There's certainly a bit of overlap there between what Althusser says and what Libanio and Taborda say here, and they cite him as well. But I want to dwell a few moments on an image of political ideology that they bring up and some of its characteristics. Dominant ideology, they say, is the oil that lubricates the machine of the capitalist system. It's not the machine itself. The machine is the economic base of society, the relations and forces of production. But this machine is clearly flawed. It has many kinks, which we know as the economic crises that seem to occur every couple of years now. Dirt and grime accumulate 
The wheels stop turning smoothly. And when this happens, an anti-capitalist threat emerges. We might wonder, wouldn't it be best to throw out the machine and replace it with one that works better? And here's where political ideology comes in. It's a lubricating oil that removes some of the grime so that the machine can continue to run flawed at its core as it may be. It convinces us that capitalism may not be ideal in every way all the time, but it's the best we've got and the best we can have. So we might as well continue to go with it. And if we go with something else, we'll end up like authoritarian communist China or Soviet Russia. So perhaps we can replace a cog or a wheel here or there. We can reform some things, but the basic structure is going to remain the same. But what's this oil like? How does it operate? For one, it seduces. It presents an airbrushed image of itself. Capitalism has lifted billions out of poverty. My great-grandparents arrived in America with $5 in their pockets, but thanks to years of hard work with X Company, they built a new life of freedom and economic independence in the States. And look at the intelligence, the wealth, the beauty, the sexual partners of the great U.S. CEOs. That's what we're about. If you innovate, if you dream big, you can accomplish anything. Next, it covers up its failures. Never mind millions of lives in Asia, Africa, and the Americas sacrificed to the idol of colonial capitalism, never mind the fact that we have to sell our bodies to a company for 40 hours or more a week in order to have the basic necessities of life, never mind the successes of alternative systems, nothing going on there, and never mind the origins of the wealth of many of our contemporary business leaders, nothing to see there either. Additionally, this oil legitimizes with metaphysical reasoning, as I described my friend doing earlier. We're naturally selfish, so capitalism best fits our nature. Capitalism is rational. Each person acts in their own interests, and then things kind of fit together in the end, somehow, invisible hand. The church recognizes the right to private property, doesn't it? It's in our documents. I'm imagining that you've heard people say these things, and I've heard these rationalizations many a time, especially around business school folks who yearn for a moral basis in the humanities that will tell them that their dirty work is actually just, natural, and sacred. We all need to feel like what we're doing is good and worthwhile, right? So capitalist ideology seduces, covers up, legitimizes itself. But it's not just capitalist ideology that does this. It was the same with feudal ideology, and it has been the same in some cases with communist ideology too. Why? Well, when we believe in something, when we want to make it work, we can seduce, cover up, and justify. So we need to be on the lookout for this sort of thing and open to rectification. We cannot shut our eyes before those who do wrong in the name of the ideology we back. We should not dust under the rug the uncomely aspects of our movement. Rather, we should name them, claim them, fix them. And this is a big one, too. We need to learn to discern between the grave errors inherent to an economic system, grave errors not inherent to an economic system, minor errors inherent to a system, and minor errors not inherent to a system. Because there are different courses of action that we should take in each case. 
Ideology raises some ethical questions that we should pause to consider. Many of these questions have to do with the relation between the universal and the particular. And right now I'm reading an excellent book, highly recommend it, by the French Jesuit and economist uh, Gaël Giraud. It's called Composé en monde en commun, in which he lays out right at the beginning a dimension of this ideological tension, very contemporary tension. He says that Western societies recognize a fundamental right to private property. So there's the universal, the right to property. Now for the particular. Let's say we have a business that owns a property, and on this property we have an oil reserve. And according to the right to property, this oil belongs to this business. It's their property. Uh, this business has the right to do what it wants with its property. It can burn it, it can sell it for energy, etc. However, given the realities of pollution, climate change, can we really say that we have a fundamental right to private property? If a certain use of this property, like energy production along with massive CO2 emissions, will cause others to become refugees around the world, will threaten our global food system, and will ultimately kill us all. Seems like we do not have this right. There's a higher right here, the right to life. So perhaps the right to private property is not a fundamental right at all. It's neither basic nor universal. Nevertheless, big nevertheless, a certain interest group benefits from ideologically protecting it as a universal basic right, and it will continue to do so even if it's not true. They'll absolutize what's actually a particular secondary right. And that's why, for all the good things of the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in that document, or in the documents of the UN, it kind of says that all of these ba rights are basic and they're all universal. It's a universal human right. But they're not all universal, and they're not all basic, and we can't treat all rights as the same. There is no absolute right to private property. Uh, your use of your private property, given that all things are connected, we live in a worldly environmental system, your use of your private property can kill other people. You don't have that right. You don't have the right to use your private property the way that you see fit. It's certainly not an absolute right. Now, indeed, <laughs> okay, that said, it's good to have some goods for private use. <laughs> uh, like when I eat a grape, all right, I need to eat it whole. I, need, I don't like to split it in two and give it to someone else. And I like to have my particular toothbrush. I like to have particular clothes for my sole use. Okay, but I see this right as a secondary or a tertiary right. Having some clothes for my particular use is certainly not as important as someone else's right to have clothes at all. And my right to a particular grape is certainly not as important as someone else's right to have food at all. All things considered, it's nice to have some private things for our use. But in a world of inequalities... We're far from all things considered. And so we have to look at how things operate in a system. We cannot merely indiscriminately apply universal rules to particular situations or particular rules to universal situations. And aside from ethical questions of universals and particulars, we also have ideology when it comes to means and ends. Ideology can be very ends-oriented, profit at all costs, leveling of economic inequality at all costs, re religious affiliation at all costs. And certain ends are certainly better than others, but it's also true that certain means are certainly better than others. And that's why it's important, I think, to develop theories of transitions. 
How can we move towards a more just world in a way that's speedy, efficient, but also life-promoting? It's essential to explore this question, as Giraud does in his book and as Lenin did as well, in What is to be Done and State and Revolution. And it's essential, too, to critique programs that marginalize the oppressed throughout the transition, as Max Aji does in A People's Green New Deal, another great book. Our ideology should not prevent us from crafting a sound, just, scientifically rigorous game plan that moves us away from colonization and towards utopia. We have to get the means right. And we have to get the means right uh, from the perspective of the oppressed. Ethics helps us sort through the problems of the particular and the universal. It also helps us to get right the ends and the means. Uh, It helps us to discern between ideologies, too. Uh, What is more ethical? Uh, Libanio and Taborda offer two guidelines. One, does ideology, the ideology at hand, does it respect the other as other? I think especially of migrants and refugees here. In both the United States and in France, there are significant anti-immigrant movements, and these movements really do break my heart. Many migrants have fled war, genocide, starvation, natural disaster, extreme poverty, and other serious problems, many of which have their roots in European colonization, neo-colonization, and war. And then they flee to alleged lands of freedom and justice, and there they face intense racism. I spent a good part of the summer in Marseille, a large city in the south of France, where there are many migrants from Algeria and other northern African countries. They, their parents, their grandparents, suffered a French war of colonial oppression that lasted through the mid to late 20th century, only to later come to France to face systematic racist oppression in the forms of economic marginalization, policing, daily racist interactions, and anti-migrant political discourse. An anti-migrant ideology completely fails the ethical test of respecting the other as other. There is little compassion, little perspective, little historical awareness, little appreciation of the golden rule. That said, we need to be aware of possible misuses of this respecting the other as other rule. I think this rule has limits. The other may have oppressive beliefs and practices, some of which they may see as core to their identity. And we don't need to respect these beliefs and practices. In general, we should tolerate differences, but tolerance is not absolute. There are things we should not tolerate. When a white English-speaking man in the U.S. says that the increasing presence of Spanish-speaking Latinx folks in his community is a disrespect to his fundamental cultural identity, when he says that this wave of migrants is a new Mexican colonization of traditionally white territory, When he says that we should rally businesses to refuse service to Spanish speakers, then my respect will not be afforded to these positions, even if he says that they are an integral part of his culture. That's why this respecting the other as other guideline should be balanced by a second one, the preferential option for the poor. If everyone tolerates and respects everyone and everything as it is now, then the rich will remain rich and the poor will remain poor. Not good. There's liberating work to be done, and it's inevitable that the dominators will perceive this work as a lack of respect to them, to their hard work, and to their culture. They will rebel against the rebellion, and they will manipulate principles like equality, liberty, and property by claiming that the ascent of the poor is inhibiting 
their equality, their liberty, and their property. And perhaps the ascent of the poor will be inhibiting the rich. But that's not of ultimate concern in the hierarchy of ethics in this context. The liberation of the poor is more crucial than the preservation of the comfort of the rich. Decolonization is more crucial than the preservation of the colonizer's privileges. Yet the question of what to do with the rich at the moment of revolutionary success is important to address, even if it's a secondary ethical question in the social project of the liberation of the poor. I think there's a balance that needs to be struck. On one hand, the rich are human beings. They are made in the image and likeness of God, as all of us are, and we need to respect everyone's dignity as children of God. So blanket solutions that sometimes people propose, like imprison all of the rich or execute all of the rich, not what I would recommend. On the other hand, the rich will not be happy if they lose power and they will want to get it back. We need to recognize this. Uh, and we can look at England uh, uh, here to see that uh, the Ancien Regime did not die easily. There are still traces of it around today. And the same will be true of the bourgeoisie. They will not go down without a fight. And when they lose, they will be kicking and screaming, no doubt about it. The revolutionary state will have to exert some of its power, ideological and repressive, to ensure that a counter-revolution is not successful. So we need to balance these things. Uh, the continued success of any revolutionary movement and also the promotion of the dignity of all people, as all of us are children of God, uh, even, even our rich oppressors. It's difficult uh, to hold these two things in balance. All right, so there are some revolutionary ethics of ideology, but let's get on to our last uh, section from Libanio and Taborda, uh, ideology's theological dimension. Though faith and ideology intersect, since faith is not ahistorical, and whatever is not ahistorical intersects with ideology, they are not the same for the Christian. Faith and ideology are different. Faith is a work of the grace of God. It's salvific in an integral sense. Faith has a transcendent horizon, which, as Ea Korea often pointed out, is transcendent in history, not alienated from history, but which also has a definitive eternal component. The object of our faith, God and the liberating work of God for humanity, is for us Christians not a mere question of utility like ideology. Faith for the Christian is a matter of reality, of truth. Faith has an absolute and unsurpassable dimension. I will not give it up. Even if a revolutionary government that's just in every way, except its militant atheism, wants to force me to give it up, I'm not going to give it up. And that's how it is for me, and that's how it is for many Christians, including many revolutionary one ones. And that needs to be said. And I said it, so, so now let's look at the connections between uh, theology and ideology at the levels of content and critique. It's been the case, and I imagine that it will continue to be the case, that political and economic ideologies do and have taken on elements of Christian theology. They may do so because their, their adherents think that these elements of Christian theology are true. They may just think it's true. Or they may do so because they think that some parts of Christianity are useful to preserve their interests, to promote their interests. That happens too. Or they may do so because of both. They think that Christianity is true and it's also useful for their interests. 
And indeed, yes, Christianity can be very useful because of its popularity, because of its claims of ultimate concern. Social groups do seek to take advantage of the symbolic force of Christianity and its capacity to mobilize. Both the left, the right, the center too have used Christianity to justify their projects, and sometimes this use is just. For example, evoking the biblical principles of welcoming the stranger and of doing unto others as we would have done unto ourselves in the context of contemporary immigration to the United States and Europe. And sometimes uh, this use of Christianity by ideology is an unjust co-option. For instance, seeing the U.S. as ancient Israel and migrants as corrupting Assyrian or Babylonian invaders. No. And I mentioned earlier how folks like my friend can deform the Christian teaching of original sin to justify the existing capitalist system. In the face of these twistings of the faith, Christians should be vigilant. Ideology can distort the message of the gospel in horrendous ways, and we need to denounce these distortions when we see them, offering sound and just theology in its place. That's why I'm particularly happy (laughs) to be uh, here in theology studies in Paris. I'll be dedicating the next few years to deepening my knowledge of scripture, tradition, ethics, and I'll be able to use this knowledge to see how our faith can interact with the signs of the times in liberative ways, and also to see how our faith is at times failing to interact well and is in need of some uh, some rectification. And I'll be able to do the same for myself. How am I living the gospel? And how am I failing to do so and in need of rectification? Yeah, and we need that. Uh, I need that. So ideology can corrupt our faith, and we need to look at the ways in which that may be happening. But ideology can also purify faith. There's no doubt that liberal ideology cleansed Christianity of some of its authoritarianism and obscurantism in the 19th and 20th centuries. Vatican II spoke of the faith in liberal terms at times, and the church profited from this dialogue with the dominant liberal ideology of its day. No doubt. The church's dialogue with Marxism has also been enormously helpful, as Marxists have helped Christians rediscover the church's proto-communism, as in the Book of Acts, and investigate and correct the problematic ways that the church has supported the capitalist ideologies of private property and imperialism. And here I highly recommend Rosa Luxemburg's 1905 essay, Socialism and the Churches which I've given as reading to some of my students in the past and which always raises some provocative questions that expose the extent to which our interpretation of Christianity is tainted by capitalist ideology. That happens too, and we need to look at that. So yes, it's a two-way street. Christianity and ideology can dialogue with each other and help each other to move closer to theories and projects of justice and truth. And we've seen this process happen in history already, and so let's, let's keep it coming. Uh, Libanio and Taborda finish with, with some fire, with some fire. Their judgment of current ideologies in Latin America. They name three, and they criticize three. Liberal capitalism, uh, the doctrine of national security, and Marxist collectivism. Let me first quickly list their critiques, which they mostly take from the Latin American Bishops Conference at Puebla. And then I want to hone in on one. So against liberal capitalism, our authors cite its violation of human dignity and seeing humanity as an instrument of production and as an object of consumption. 
They condemn its promotion of inequities between the rich and the poor, its institutionalizing of injustice, its putting capital before labor, its creation of dependency, domestic and international, and its practical atheism, materialism, and individualism. And I think in this list, really no huge surprises for me. It's what we've seen in many previous episodes, and they reiterate these things here. There's no doubt that liberal capitalism is is a bad actor in our situation, and so we need to uh, take a look at the ways in which it is problematic. And against the doctrine of national security, there are so many things to say here, but, but they mention its abuse of power, violation of human rights, statist vision of humanity, its limitation of individual liberties, its hawkishness, its suppression of political participation, and its idolatry of power in the function of wealth. And they're certainly right here as well. In the name of anti-communism, Latin American governments, in collaboration with the U.S., have committed countless atrocities and uh, certainly have put the dagger in uh, many democratic movements. And against Marxist collectivism, uh, they name a few important things. They question its totalitarianism, its being closed to critique and rectification. They critique its concentration of power in the state, its spiral of violence, its messianic collectivist vision of humanity, its reduction of the human to external structures with no acknowledgement of any internal locus of control, its idolatry of riches but in a collective form, its militant atheism, and its materialist presupposition. And with our authors, I agree that liberationist Christians need to be real about the historical errors, sometimes extremely grave, of leftist movements. And yes, too, we ought to carefully discern where oppression under socialism is truly that and where it's merely capitalist propaganda. That's essential. We need to look at that. Because many of us are so immersed in an environment of capitalist propaganda, we need to seriously look at what is true and what is false that's coming out from capitalist propaganda about leftist movements that have happened around the world and that exist now. But with Libano and Taborda, I think leftist politics is at its best when it's open to rectification and when this rectification comes from the masses. Leftist leaders are not immune to corruption. So we need truly democratic structures to keep them accountable and to ensure that the preferential option for the poor remains our guiding light. The oppressed are the best judges of whether a political movement is liberating them from oppression, for they can see the level to which they are participants in the movement, the degree to which their voices are not only heard but also obeyed, the degree to which they are truly the protagonists of this movement, the amount of concrete material benefits that the movement is yielding. The oppressed are also the best judges of ideology, for their interests are more universal. The poor are the majority of this world, and the liberation of all the world is therefore dependent on their liberation. There is no stride toward justice that does not involve the advance of the poor. For every time the oppressors advance, since our society is relationally exploitative, the oppressed retreat. So let us judge ideology, as Libano and Taborda suggest at the end of the chapter, from the perspective of the oppressed, alongside the oppressed. Let us give our ears to the oppressed, the oppressed listening to each other, those in solidarity listening as well. Words of freedom will come from the mouths of the oppressed. From the mouth of the oppressor, no liberation will come. 
Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. It's been great to be back with you. Next time, please join us for a continuation of our discussion of ideology with Luis Althusser and the ideological state apparatus theory. That will be excellent. Look forward to that. But for now, let us end with a prayer. Uh, let's do together the Our Father in Spanish. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Padre nuestro, que estás en el cielo, santificado sea tu nombre. Venga a nosotros tu reino, hágase tu voluntad en la tierra como en el cielo. Danos hoy nuestro pan de cada día, perdona nuestras ofensas, como también nosotros perdonamos a los que nos ofenden. Y no nos dejes caer en la tentación, y líbranos del mal. Amén. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.